Welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast, making health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. Hi, it's Colin Nottage here, and welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. Oh, I've got a fantastic guest this week. Um, we are talking to John Green. Um, John worked very, very closely with Sydney Decker uh, down in Australia, um, bringing the safety sort of differently approach into uh, Lango Rourke, um, and currently is working um, with a Canadian company, um, SNC Lavalin, um, who he's only just started uh, working with. Uh, and we have an interesting conversation about uh, you know, how he started work right in the middle of, uh, of, of COVID uh, and the issues and the problems that that causes. Um, I am going to hand over to John and I'll speak to you again at the end. Thanks a lot, John. You know, can, you, can, you explain, can you explain who you are, please? Yeah, so I'm John, the Vice President of HSE for um, a Canadian company called SNC Lavalin. Uh, I've been involved in safety for over four decades now. I'm always embarrassed by every time I say that, kind of another year gets added on. So I, I've stopped saying the exact number of years, and it's just now over four decades. But I've actually never done anything else. So safety is the only trade I have ever applied in this world. Mm-hmm. So that's that's me. Okay. And you're you're based you're based here in the UK. Are you or yeah? So um, I'm, I'm in Scotland at the moment, right. um, but uh, we have a we uh, have an office in London. We have offices all over the UK, but we have an office in London. We own Atkins, right. the big consulting engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have offices in London and Montreal um, and all over the rest of the world. But I spend most of my time, or I will spend most of my time. I suspect between the the offices in London and the headquarters in, in Montreal, because mm-hmm. you you haven't um you haven't been with this this organisation that long. It was earlier earlier this year, I think, wasn't it? That you yeah, I joined them in the beginning of April, which was a which was a hell of a time to join them. Um, I'd come back from I'd been working in Canada, came back from Canada, and um, I had a chat with a few folk that I knew who were ex lines uh, people who were working for SNC and. Um, they suggested that they had an opening um, that, that would be suitable. So I had a chat with them um, over over Christmas time, and, and decided that's that, that's where I'd head. And so I actually headed back home in in, in January, um, just to set everything up mm-hmm. with the plans of returning to Canada to sort the house out that we had in in, in Toronto. Um, and this all this all this happened, so I couldn't get back to to Toronto to sort the house out. Pick all our goods up, so all that was done remotely. Mm. So we had guys walking around the, the house in Toronto with um, iPhones. You know, is this yours? Is this yours? Is this yours? <laughs> <laughs> putting stickers on it. So it was a really weird experience. Yeah. So I've actually never, I'm, short of the people I already know, I've never actually met anyone in SNC yet. So I can recognise them from the shoulders up. Right. Um, I have no idea how tall they are. Um, I've got a good idea what their the taste in interior design and decorations like, yep. but um, you know, three months now I've been with them and I never actually sat down and met any of them yet. So it's been a really weird experience to land in the in the middle of this to try and help a big organisation manage their way through, you know, the uncertainty of something like this. Yeah. Um, but never have spent any time in any of their offices. Wow, that or, is, or on any of their sites. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird. That is that is really that is really weird. You know, because I um, you know, I've I've done um, I've done a little bit of a of, of sort of background look looking at you know the, the 
the stuff that they that the the company say and the stuff that the company do and um and it, and it's well, well we'll come on to that in a minute but it's um mm-hmm. it's not you know from what a lot of what I've read it's not um it's not that safety differently and so I see I see you must look at the you must look at the business as an absolutely amazing opportunity an amazing challenge to just get in there and and help help mold is that I mean how it, what, what what is your take on it. So, yeah, you're right. Um, there are very few businesses when you look at them uh, are outwardly safety to or, or safety differently anyway. It, it's, you know, it's very much uh, kind of thin end of the wedge to try and get in there. If you looked at lines, you would probably see evidence of safety to and safety differently in practice. If you looked at Qantas and, and other organizations that we'd worked with mm-hmm. in the past, you would probably see that. But there are very few that um, outwardly uh, portray safety to safety differently values. Most organisations, particularly in construction, are um, are traditional in their views of safety. And but one of the reasons I, I think I get asked to join is is a desire and appetite to change things, to change things up, you know, to a recognition that that safety is probably I've got a little bit stale. Um, and that uh, performance has plateaued. And that's nearly always what you find when you go in, that uh, there's a dissatisfaction uh, with safety, um, but a relative ignorance about what that dissatisfaction should lead to. Um, you know, perhaps we should just be dissatisfied <laughs> um, because we really don't know what, what we should be doing to change things. Um, but there, 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 there's certainly, a, I think you have to be empathetic and careful about how you go about changing organizations because everyone's resistant to change. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think I think organizations genuinely actually are proud of what they've achieved yeah. in safety. And I, I don't think anyone sets out to do the wrong thing in safety. I think everyone sets out to do the right things. Whether or not they are the right things is another matter. But I think everyone approaches it with, with the right mentality, with the right sort of ethical and moral compass, um, and so when you challenge what they're doing, they, they naturally get quite offended yeah. and, and reserved about it and, and you can off-go the barriers. So you have to be careful about how you approach an organization and challenge the way they're, they're doing things, suggest that perhaps it's, it's, it's not the way that modern organizations do stuff. Um, so I a sensitive approach rather than you know going in it's i mean it, it's not baby out with bathwater anyway and i think that's a that's an unfortunate position that um you know the two schools of thought if you like have got themselves into this this opposition with one another which is really unfortunate because when we started talking about this and i've made this point several times when dan when daniel hammerdahl and i started talking about this with sydney uh, with with decker you know 10 years ago this was always meant to be a platform um, that allowed for challenge, it allowed for different ways of thinking. It was really meant to be a fertile ground where um, you know you could bring any thought and any theory in, and we'd test it out and we'd see how it, how it went. It was never meant to be a locked down series of dogmatic statements or beliefs that you know were in opposition to everything else. So the conversation was always what we're doing traditionally, and what we plan to do moving forward. It was never what we're doing traditionally or what we're planning to do moving forward because there are elements of traditional, and I'll I'll use traditional safety as a definition, um, 
that we will always continue to do that really add great value that are that are worthwhile doing. We will always have rules. We'll hold. You know, we'll always have assessments. Um, we'll always investigate things, whether it's things that have gone um, badly or things that have gone well. Um, you know, so there are certain things we'll carry forward. Um, but similarly, there are certain things I think we need to jettison. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have the courage to jettison these things um, and move forward with either a different set of tools or at least a different way of looking at things with our existing set of tools. Mm-hmm. So I, I think when you explain that to organizations, um, they're much more amenable to change. When you, when you talk about repurposing some of the stuff they're already doing rather than throwing everything out and starting afresh, mm-hmm. you start to ask questions, well, you know, what do you mean by that? What, what stuff will we hang on to? How do we transition easily from a tradition, traditional way of thinking into a more modern way of looking at safety? And they're much more interested then um, rather than this uh, approach, which just, you know, you need to throw everything away. It's not working anymore. Um, you know, I've, I've said before, safety is broken, and I do believe that it is. But I do believe, similarly, there are elements of the traditional approach, which has done us so well over the last three decades, that we need to continue with. So I, I do take um, a slight offence, I guess, that, that uh, those who have made this a, a, a battle between two schools of thought, um, because it was never intended to be that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I get what you're saying there, and it's um you know because I you know I, I I had a look you know I had a look through um I had a look through the, the blue book I think it is that you've got in the yeah. you know in the business and it and I was looking through it and I thought yeah there's some really there's some really interesting stuff in there and I and I, I, I suppose you know what what I saw and 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 we're not here just to talk about your new company right you know but but I you know I you know there, there was there was stuff in there with your code of conduct about about having um you know. Having openness and, and honesty and all these sort yeah. of things, which I thought were, you know, and people, you know, people having accountability for what they, for what they can, what they can look after. But then I also saw some stuff, you know, that I, <laughs> I did actually see the accident triangle in there somewhere, and I went, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I went, right, you are. So there's things you can go. There's one bit that, that I'd really be interested in your view because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dilemma for me because I'm, you know, I've been a long time in in, in health and safety, and there's a. There's a thing that, that you do in your business, which is the step back. Okay. Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, you, the people taking taking two minutes, I think it is, to step back two meters and have a look at the have a look at the job. Is that is that is that sort of something that you would you would look to continue to keep that kind of idea in the business? Because because what I see is, and sorry, I'll, I'll just finish, and then you know, because what I see is those kind of things can be quite good until until they get. They get weaponized and they get used against people. How, how would you? How would would you look to keep that and then, but just get the management to to react to what's coming out differently, or if something goes wrong? And you know, what's your view on that? So I, I think it. I think you're right. They become weaponized. They they become numerical. Yep. Um, so rather than the quality of of a setback conversation or observation, you're actually you have a target against them. Mm. Um, and as soon as the target becomes, or as soon as the measure becomes a target, it becomes useless. Uh, so I think it's how you use them. I actually don't see a difference or a huge difference, for instance, between a properly used step back and an effective plan versus actual. So one of the uh, one of the cornerstones of 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 safety differently is there is always a difference between how work is actually performed and how work was designed to be performed, particularly in construction. There is always a gap. Mm -hmm. And it's in that gap, this messy gap, 
that the um, the precursors to adverse events are starting to be formed, and, and over time that gap becomes larger, um, and you're no longer doing the job, uh, you know, in any way close to the way that it was originally designed, and that gap now is so large that you're you're essentially out of control. You know, you've normalised the deviation all the way through, and you've got a different job to the one that was originally planned. If you allow people to express themselves that that difference is starting to arise, um, I think you've got a better chance of um, catching these things before they before they become out of control, before they become events. The problem with setback, um, the way that it's managed at the moment, and, and any observation program, is that we don't really encourage the workers to tell us what's truly happening. Um, you know, there's a kind of lockdown that says we know best, so managers know best. Um, we've designed the program that way. We don't want to know when you're deviating from it. We want to we want to believe that you're doing it the way that it was written down. Um, and the only time we're interested in it is when something goes wrong, and we'll hold you accountable for not following the procedure. Yeah. Rather than you might have a really good idea about how this task could be completed more effectively, safer, more efficiently. But we're not really interested in that. So I think the problem with um, setbacks is is not the, the philosophy that sits behind them or the the potential that they have. The problem with them is the 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 environment in which they're used in the moment, and that environment is one very much of command and control, of failing to understand this difference between uh, work as planned versus versus work as done. So I don't see I don't see, for instance, a properly used setback where the where the crew step back and say, right, this is the way this is designed, and we've read the method statement. Now let's look at the way we're going to be doing it. Do we have the tools? Do we have the time? Do we have the resources? Do the key people about to carry out this task have the necessary training? If not, then we need to either stop or we need to figure out what a workaround looks like. You know, how do we actually complete this job? Um, with what we've got. Now you can support people to be successful in environments like that, providing they talk to you about these deviations. But at the moment, we don't really encourage people to talk about these deviations. Actually, we encourage them to hide them. Um, and as we walk around, I, I, I think these are really powerful tools for engagement, but they're not used that way at the moment. So I would still encourage these things to be used, but I think the, the circumstances uh, in which you use them is different, and where the power sits in that conversation is a little bit different. Um, and that's a, that, I think that's an interesting topic: is where does the power sit in uh, you know in a safety differently or a safety two world? Where does the power for safety sit? Yeah, I mean, it's, with, it's with the people, isn't it? It's with the people who stop yeah. them. Yeah, it's the people who stand in the middle of risk every single day. Yeah, yeah. That's what the purpose is, and actually always has done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've often, when I'm speaking to organizations, it's not, um, right, well, well, we'll change where the power sits. But it's, it's not like that. It's actually we're changing your understanding of where the power sits. It's always sat with the workforce, in, in truth. Now that you know that, what do you want to do about it? And that's that's the important point. I'm just, I'm just sitting here, just sitting here thinking, I suppose, you know, what you want to try and achieve, I suppose, is you want the you want the management to step forward to 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 support the guys that are that are stepping back and considering what's going on. And if you can if yeah. you can achieve that, then then what a great place you're in. Yeah. Well, that, and that's right, but it's a big ask. 
um, because what you're dealing with, you know, are big egos mm-hmm. in in managers, and and you know, in many ways, we've created a a cadre of managers who who believe and who have been brought up to believe that their role is to have all the answers. You know, and if you don't have all the answers, you're somehow a weak, ineffective, or incomplete manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas, then you know, in the modern world of work, that's not the case at all. In fact, if you look at construction over the last twenty years, I very much doubt there is anyone at the top of the tree in a construction business who truly understands how modern, modern methods of construction really work, and therefore. You know, it's a bit of a nonsense that they have all the answers, given that probably what they're looking at is completely alien to them. Um, the role of, of, of leaders is to have better questions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not, not all the answers. And, you know, and those questions are questions like, when is work difficult? When do you struggle? Um, if you're going to be injured in this task, when's it going to happen? Um, you know, those are the sorts of questions <clears throat> that create conversations about risk, and then allow all of these, you know, really messy details, the interesting stuff, to come out. Um, you know, I, I, I like look back to my time in Australia, and, and some of the conversations that we had with people were were illuminating mm-hmm. about the skills that they had, which were hidden away and not being used properly. That the you know the un, untapped talent yeah. that sat with the workforce that that. No one considered existed simply because these guys had orange overalls and hard hats on. Yeah, I mean, there's some, you know, you, 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 I look back at some, you know, my career, and you know, and there's just some, so many. I mean, I did a lot of work in the quarrying industry, and it's quite a, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a basic injury. But some of the, the skill sets that the that the guys had, and how adaptable they are to get the, you know, to get the to get the business out of out of the problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. If they do that and and they and they succeed, whatever that is, you know, they you know they don't get hurt, then it almost goes un, unnoticed. But the minute something goes wrong, they get criticised for being adaptable. You know, yeah, and, and it's yeah. you know it's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, it is, and I and I think partly we've got ourselves to blame for that because we have separated out safety as a separate activity is this separate value in, in many ways mm-hmm. um you know we talk about it being number one which is well i mean we could talk about that all day if you want um but we we kind of think that it's this separate outcome and, you know, and we talk about people come to work to be safe people don't come to work to be safe they come to work to be successful yep right and part of that is going home safely at the end of the day. But part of that is finishing the job you've been asked to do in the time that you've been allocated to the quality that's expected. People take pride in their work most of the time. And and safety is simply a facet of that successful outcome. Um, And if we saw it like that, if we saw it as an outcome of successful work, I think we'd be an awful lot more successful in in improving safety, yeah. simply because we see it. This uh, most of our most of our efforts are about work. They're not about safety, mm-hmm. but we see it in this through this peculiar individual lens. And as such, I think our success rate suffers. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when I was reading, um, you know, when I was reading your code of code of conduct, um, you know, I, I, I was really encouraged because there, there was words there was words in there like about being 
proud of your workplace and being respectful for your colleagues and you know and and uh, you know and, and considering other people's needs and stuff like that and i just thought that's you know that's a fantastic that's a fantastic basis to to work from and um you know so i can i can really see that you you know you've got you've definitely got something there that you can that you can build around but then because what i also saw which was quite funny and uh, is a was when you're working at height protocol there was a there was a, a green there was a line at two meters and above it was red and below it was green and you know, <laughs> i know again it goes back to the the 1961 factories act you know when they had all these prescriptions that's the problem with a with an international company you know you, you're driven very much by the kind of underlying culture of where it's where it's based yeah. and, and and canadian organizations um are still very um compliance driven yep um, they still have a, a you know a, a mentality that says, well, if the, if the solution is compliant, that will do, even if it doesn't manage the risk properly. So, one of the challenges you have in an international company is, you know, how do you take different cultures, different approaches, different underlying philosophies? How do you take them and and make them what you what you want them to be or, or need them to be? Um, and I think that's one of the interesting things where Safety Differently was born in really in Australia, or it was launched, operationalized to begin with in Australia. Um, and then the difficulties that we had bringing it back to Europe, and then the challenges that we had taking it to other parts of the world. Um, I think everyone wants the same outcome. I think everyone wants to be safe. But if anything, you know, this, this pandemic has shown us that there are different cultural responses to the same sorts of challenges. You know mask and rule rule abiding abiding behavior is common in the far east um because that's the way that's the way they are Mm -hmm. um but it's clearly less common in you know western democracies like the us Mm -hmm. um it's much more difficult to get people to follow rules and to understand the need for them Mm -hmm. um but it's easy to get them to follow rules in in places like china and, and hong kong simply because that's the underlying philosophy and I think as well is you know those those environments had um, you know they had SARS ten years ago, and and so yeah. and so they they've sort of been through something, and they and and, and, and so they've learned from that, and and yeah. you know whereas you know in, in you know we in the western in the western cultures we we haven't you know we're still we're still working it out aren't we, so yeah and we yeah. and we would do things differently if, when the next one when the next thing comes along than now we've done it this time. And that's yeah, I, I think this. So I, I look at this um, pandemic, and everyone everyone tells me that this is such a different way of managing things. Mm. You know, this crisis has thrown up such a different way of managing things. It would be good to get back to the way you know managing things the way we used to manage them. Actually, I, I'm not sure I see a huge difference mm-hmm. between our response in situations like this and the way that we should manage things normally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a couple of things, a couple of uh, approaches that have come out of this that I find very interesting. Um, firstly, there, I think everyone accepts that you can't manage this with one set of rules. Yep. That there isn't a command and control approach to pandemic um, management. That there, there is, you know, a central approach that allows a huge degree of flexibility mm-hmm. uh, locally to respond to local needs. Now, I don't think that's any different from the way that modern businesses should be managed, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a, 
uh, an understanding of where rules are necessary. Mm -hmm. So I know there was a lot of talk that, you know, we couldn't lock down people as early as we wanted to because there would be huge amounts of resistance. Actually, there wasn't. I, and again, I think people understand the need for rules in high-risk situations and are willing to abide by them, um, which again is a kind of safety safety two view. You know, you have rules for high-risk high-risk situations, but you don't have rules for everything because they don't make sense, um, and they dilute the efforts of the rules, which are really important. So, um, you know, I, I I look at this and think actually maybe this is the way businesses should be managing their operations when they get back to normal as well, and I'm hoping. Then a number of them realize that that's the case, that you can't have this one rule for everyone, command and control rules for everything, and a belief that actually you're in control of all of this yep. and, and you, you're able to manage the outcomes. So I, I think it's been an interesting challenge to management styles and organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, you know, I think, you know, you know what you need to set is is you need to set the right, the right vision and the right values, you know, and, and you get that. You know, you get that that right, and then and then you've got to then start to to trust the people within your organisation to to apply that, and because yeah. you can't, you know, there's there's no point in you know in a business of your size, there's no point in in trying to trying to have one size fits all. It just doesn't, it doesn't no. fit. No. And to be fair, you could you can actually take that down. You can take that down into a into a smaller business and different departments. You know, one one size doesn't fit all. You know, it's gonna it's about the individuals, isn't it? It's about the people that are there. Yeah. And trust is a huge thing. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't just affect safety. Mm -hmm. um, a lack of trust tends to mean in organisations that the only time you ever hear about any problems is, is when they're so big they can no longer be hidden. Yeah. Um, and, and that could be a commercial issue. It could be, uh, you know, an issue on HR. It could be an issue in safety. But the only time you find out about these issues is when they're too big to be hidden anymore. Whereas if you've got trust in your organisation, you can deal with these things, mm -hmm. you know, as the as the as the potential grows, and you can nip them in the bud. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that's a difficult that's a, that's a difficult characteristic and attribute to build trust. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fundamental, really, to everything that we're trying to do moving forward. It's very it's very easy to uh, very easy to break it, isn't it? You know, you building, oh, you're yeah. building I, yeah. There's a phrase: it takes years to earn and seconds to lose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I am. Um, I've been um, chatting with uh, Clive, uh, Clive Lloyd. Yeah, yeah. Really, you know, you know, trust is is such such a big factor for him, and it's just it's so fascinating listening to him, and uh, you know, and, and how you know how he tries to to you know sort of help businesses really understand where they are. I suppose you know on the yeah. you know I, I don't know if there is a I don't know if there is a, gra a, a, a curve or a grading or whatever it is for it, but it, you you are where you are and you want to be somewhere a little bit different, and then you and then you've got that journey to to make to, to get there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you talk to we tell you they have, um, mm -hmm. you know, whereas you went to the workforce, I think you get a very different set of answers. Um, but there are, you know, there are ways of there are ways of doing it. Um, and I, th I think in, in organizations where we've taken them through this this safety differently um, maturing um, process, I think we've seen trust emerge. And as a result, there's a whole bunch of other stuff happens. You know, so you don't just see improvements in safety. Mm. You see improvements in, in retention. You see improvements in, in job quality. You see improvements across the board, mm. as you would expect. Yeah. And it's some, um, you know, it's just such a, 
you know, such a nicer place to work in, a, in an environment where, where you listen to, you know. That, yeah, but, yeah. One of the um, young, sorry, go on. I was going to say, and that's an interesting story. Um, when we when we started doing this in in Australia, one of the um, one of the things we found was, in parts of our business, we weren't actually seeing a reduction in the number of accidents. We're still having the same number of accidents, but what we were seeing was a reduction in the amount of time that people were taking off as a result of similar types of accidents over the years. Um, and that can be a significant cost mm-hmm. to a business that's running fly in and fly out. Um, on its on its side, so you fly your workers in. They're there for two weeks, and then you fly them out. And if someone's sick, sometimes you'll fly them out early. So there's a considerable expense happening. Um, and so we took the unusual step of going and asking the workers. <laughs> you know, often the, the the individuals who are left out of these sorts of discussions are the people who have the most valuable insights. Um, and they said to us, "Look, well, you know, a couple of years ago, this was a really crappy place to work." You know, no one, you know, we were told what to do. We were given ridiculous schedules. Really, you didn't care about us. And frankly, we didn't care about you. So if we had an accident or something approximating an accident, (laughs) which was an indication that perhaps they were just, you know, occasionally swinging the lead, we would take 10 days off and we would go home. Uh, You know, we'd, we'd have time with the families and then we would come back. But now, this is a this is an awesome place to work. You know, we have a degree of mastery and autonomy over over the schedules. Um, we can pretty much decide amongst ourselves, providing we hit you know the targets at the end of the the uh, the swing. We can pretty much decide ourselves how we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. This is an awesome, this is a terrific place to work. So why wouldn't you want to come back mm-hmm. the day after you've maybe had a you know a slight accident? You know, so there was this huge improvement in efficiency, this huge improvement in in relationships. Um, there was there was all brought about by trusting, well, listening to the workforce and trusting them, and that the the financial implications of that were huge, absolutely massive. So traditionally, we would have only looked at the number of accidents that we were having, and we would have thought this isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not yeah. seeing any any you know any drop in the number of accidents. But we were prepared to be surprised. So we were curious about what's going on. We were looking for signs that something was changing, either getting worse or getting better. Um, and this popped out, you know, there's an awful lot less days being taken as a result of the same number of accidents. You think, well, okay, well, so why is this? So I think, again, one of the important things to remember is don't be um, so locked into your existing metrics that you cannot be surprised by other stuff that's happening. Be prepared to be surprised. In fact, organize organize yourself so that you can be surprised by what's going on. Mm-hmm. And if something pops out, go and have a look at it, even though you might think it is completely unconnected with safety. Go and have a look at it. And you never know what you might find. What's um, I think that's great, Matt. You know, that's, you know, that, you know, having people that, that again that are comfortable to tell you that the workplace is better is a is a great uh, great environment. But if you're not going to use the the sort of tra- traditional stuff, like you know, I've been on I've been on a call this morning before we came on with a with a with a company, and they and they were they were trying to get their heads around their accident incident rates, and their lost time injury frequency rates, and all. And I you know, and I've said to them for a while that you know don't, don't even bother looking at this stuff, right? But um, well, probably not that, but you know, you know, look look at it, but look at it in a different way. Um, because we spent, we've just spent three quarters of an hour looking at numbers, and not once discussed how was any of the people that have been affected, or or what is what is what is the business doing to try and stop these things from happening. 
what sort of measures would you would you use then? You know, if you're not going to use some of these traditional measures, what what do you see as things that that, that you can use to demonstrate improvement? So I, I don't think you'll ever get away from accident rates um, and numbers of people injured because ultimately, at the end of the day. All of our efforts are directed towards making our businesses safer places to work. Mm-hmm. And a manifestation, one manifestation of that is how many people are injured um, when interfacing or working with our business, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think you will, it would be very difficult, I think, to ever have a conversation with someone who says to you, so how safe is the business you work for? Uh, and you can't tell them how many people have been injured. And there's something morally bankrupt about that. So I don't think you'll ever get away from that. Um, I, the problem is what we read into that. So we read into it that that if you're not having accidents, then you must be safe. So safety becomes the absence of something, right? So it's it's what we've done essentially is replace a really difficult question, which is what's safety like around here? Yeah with a really easy one, which is how many accidents have we had? And so we've got this surrogate question, this surrogate response, and we believe that the high, a high number of accidents means that fundamentally you're unsafe and a low number of accidents means you're safe. And now there's a, there are a number of dangerous assumptions lurking, of course, within that. So if you're not having any accidents, how do you know you're safe um, if nothing is going on? Is there some other way you could arrive at having no accidents in a day? Actually, there's lots of other ways, and they're all pretty corrupt. And none of them you would want to have happening on your, in your business. But but they are other ways of having no accidents recorded. Mm-hmm. So I think you will always have these incident figures. But they're outcomes. They are dependent variables. You can't play with the number of accidents you've had. You can't make 6-5, mm-hmm. and you can't make 100, 140, or 60. Mm-hmm. Um, they are dependent variables. There's stuff feeding into that that you can that you can change. You know, so the, the sorts of activities that um, affect the likelihood or not of having an accident. So I look at things like um, when we go to work in high risk situations, are we working the way that we imagined that we're working? So our critical controls, and this is one of the areas where I think you can bridge the old way of thinking into the new way of thinking. So most organizations will be familiar with critical risk controls. Mm -hmm. Those things that you must have before you start a piece of work. Mm -hmm. I think there are ways of using those critical risk controls differently Mm -hmm. to generate information, intelligence, and data that you can respond to. So we look at critical risk controls and what we call go no go criteria. So these are the things we absolutely have to have before a critical task can proceed. And there are about 10 of those for each critical task or critical risk. And there are about 14 critical risks in a, in a, in a construction organization. And if you've got those, that's great. And so we chart and we record the number of um, critical risk evaluations that we do and the number of goes that are present, but we also encourage people to tell us where there are no goes. Um, you know, these are things that we didn't have in place before we started. Mm-hmm. Um, these are things we missed out of the planning process. Um, 
And that gives us a better idea of really where we should be directing our attention and our efforts in terms of safety programs. So perhaps we have a problem with um, geotechnical reports on heavy lifts across the business. Well, we can direct our attention towards geotechnical reports rather than play this constant game of whack-a-mole with um, with accidents, you know, an accident pops up, we hit it with an investigation mallet, and it disappears, only to pop up somewhere else. You know, it's rather it's it's, it's perverse mm-hmm. looking at accidents as a means of of eliminating or avoiding them. Mm-hmm. It's it's utterly perverse, mm-hmm. um, because that means really you can only be really good at safety, you're not having any accidents, or really crap at safety. You're having them. There isn't. A, there isn't a between. You know, get, we, have, we have an LTFR of, of zero, and then we have an accident, and now suddenly our LTIFR is one. So yesterday you were you were great. Tomorrow you're crap. So we look at critical risks, and and that's a conversation that the business is familiar with. So you're not suddenly changing things. You're not suddenly introducing something brand new. We look at um, high potential events. Um, you know, so these are I can these are gifts. I consider them gifts. These are events that had the potential to kill or seriously injure someone, but for some reason, you know, nothing adverse happened. Um, perhaps it was a control measure that that worked. Um, perhaps it was luck. Perhaps it was just someone in the wrong place at the right time that they weren't injured. Um, but these are gifts, and I think we owe it to the organization to be thorough in the way that we look at these, these events. Now, the thing about critical fixing critical risk controls and fixing high potential um, events or the, or the actions arising from them um, is that you have ultimate control over how quickly and effectively you're fixing these things. You, you can devote resources. You can see how long it's going to take you. So really, you should be closing these with a high degree of efficiency. So we look at three baskets, if you like. So we look at what's happening as a result of what we're doing. And that tends to be events. Are we having adverse events? Are we having um, successful outcomes? Um, then we look at... Uh, what are we doing? So what areas are we focusing on? Are we focusing on critical risks? Are we focusing on high potential events? Are we focusing on plan versus action? And what are we doing then with the actions that arise from these assessments? Are we closing them as efficiently as possible? So is our system operating the way it was designed to operate? And those are the three three baskets that we, we put everything in. Everything else and you can count these, so you know, there's, and you can put a number against them, which is terrific because engineering organisations love numbers. But there are a whole bunch of other stuff that, that we do that essentially are measures, but they don't generate numbers. So you think about the leadership conversations that you have; these are these are measures. They, they're just not quality, they're just not quantitative measures. Yeah. But there's a bunch of stuff comes out of those as well. So we try and capture themes around the conversations that are going on in the business. Um, and we, we, we gather these at the end of a month and we talk about them. You know, so in your, in your month of um, leadership visits, what themes emerge? Um, and these are not technical themes. They tend to be themes about how people feel. Um, whether there's a high degree of trust, um, is, the, is the project operating the way it's designed to operate, or are there a bunch of informal structures 
within the within the project that, that are making it. Is there is is there new risks arising that were that we didn't envisage? Has someone come up with a genius of a way of of changing the way we erect scaffolding or changing the way we work at height? And how do we send that and spread that across the organisation? But sitting at the back of all of this, of course, is this continued need to be or to have the ability to be surprised mm -hmm. by what's happening. Mm -hmm. So we're not locked into um, a fixed dashboard. In fact, we, we have plans to occasionally rotate our measures so that when people look at dashboards, they see something new. Because yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that you become used to seeing a, a dashboard and, and, and perhaps blase and familiar about the metrics mm -hmm. and, and and relatively fixed in how you respond. So if you see a red box, you respond negatively. And if you see a green box, you you, you think that's absolutely fantastic. I'm actually really interested in the green boxes yeah. and how they got green and perhaps what's hidden behind that green box as opposed to the red box where I know at least the guy's been honest. Um, you know, so there's a, again, there's a phrase that says, you know, challenge the green, embrace the red, challenge the green. Um, so that's the sort of stuff that, that we do. But you know, sitting behind all of that, there's this continued ability to be surprised about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I love that. That challenge the uh, challenge the green. You know, it, it, there's there's it's so easy to get to get drawn into that complacency, isn't it? That you know everything everything's ticked, everything's okay, um, but we but we know in reality that there's there's all sorts of stuff potentially that's going on out there, and it's the you know it's yeah. the easiest thing in the world to pick the box, isn't it? It is, and it's unfortunately the nature of the world we find ourselves in just now that you have to condense everything down into a dashboard. Mm. Executives have probably got 10 minutes to look at these things, mm. um, and therefore, you know, these dashboards tend to be created in a way that makes them easy mm -hmm. to digest, mm. um, not really to understand what sits behind them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's why it's so necessary the executives understand that their role is not to have all of the answers it's to have better questions and so and better questions allow you um to interrogate those dashboards much better you know so what does a green mean yeah. it's a great question because yeah. you, you know well it means it's okay but what's okay yeah. um you know well it's an 80 percent score in an audit Okay, what about the 20% they didn't get? Is that important? These are great questions, as opposed to just looking at this green box and thinking, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So where are you, um, you know, how, how, how do you go about then, you know, deciding on where your priorities are then when you, when you come into a new organisation like you, you have? Because there is, there's potentially so much that's going to be going on out there. You know, how do you, what are the steps that you take to, you know, to sort of get, get a program for yourself? So it, it's never the same in two organizations um, because, they, well, they're, they're different. They will have different personalities. Organizations have different personalities. Um, executives will have different uh, desires. They'll have different agendas. Uh, they'll, have, they'll have different buttons that, they, that, they, that you can push and, and have buttons that you want to avoid. Um, <laughs> There'll also be context um, of the organization that you're joining that makes certain things easier to do and certain things more difficult. So, for instance, um, in Langs, when we started doing this in Australia, um, 
we had had three fatalities in Europe um, in the space of 18 months. And these were all on projects which actually had excellent safety records. It wasn't a case of there was 100 accidents and then suddenly someone lost their life. Mm -hmm. It was there were no accidents, none at all. You know, so these would have won awards for um, you know, safety performance had, had the fatality not occurred. The fatality came out of the blue. It was a surprise to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and therefore, for that organization, a focus on what's the intelligence you can gather other than accidents that would make it easier to spot whether something like that, this is brewing in the background and we're simply not seeing it. And that, that, was, that was the, um, the hot button yep. for that organization. Um, for... Um, for, the, for, for SNC, I suspect it's a move towards better use of the critical risk controls. If you look at the Blue Book, mm -hmm. um, the Blue Book is already structured. First of all, one of the remarkable things about the Blue Book is it's only 250 pages long. Mm -hmm. Well, for a safety management system, mm -hmm. that's not bad. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, if you printed it in A4, it would be something like 100 pages long. So that, that's pretty good for a safety management system. I've worked in organizations where safety management systems run thousands of pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think using what they've got in a different way is, is probably going to be the first step with them. Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's, a, there's a tactic called intelligent waiting that, uh, that the special forces use. And, and that's, we know what we're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we when we get dropped into a, into an area, we just don't know when we're going to be doing it, mm -hmm. um, and we're going to wait for the right time to do it. So often they'll go in and they'll wait for you know days or weeks before deciding to strike when you know it's optimum. So I, I think it's a really useful tactic because trying to introduce something that you know works at a time when you when it's not going to work is counterproductive because you probably won't get a second chance of doing it. Mm -hmm. So when we did this in Australia, it was top down um, management um, intervention, you know, big management support cascaded down. All of the initiatives came from the top and they were cascaded down um, to the operations. The downside of that was that we didn't see much in the way of um, kind of workforce, workforce engagement and workforce driven activity yeah. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, we got we got that fixed. But. That was the problem with the top down. When we came to Europe, we did it bottom up. So there were thousands of things that we encouraged to happen on projects, lots of experimentation and innovation going on. But I remember sitting at a board meeting um, one day and the organization saying to me, um, there doesn't seem to be very much working. Um, there's not much going on in this safety differently stuff. Um, and I said to them, there's thousands of experiments. Why do you think there's nothing happening? And they said, well, because we haven't thought of anything. And it was like, no. <laughs> this so, so thinking about stuff is a management activity. Innovation is a management activity. Uh, and you don't expect any of that to happen to the workforce. The fact was they didn't know any of this was going on. So this was a problem. Um, so we started to involve um, top down as well. Yeah. Way we've done it since then, we go in at the side. So there's a kind of side-in intervention. So we get high levels of activity, high levels of uh, innovation and experimentation in the workforce, but we connect that with a clear degree of support and encouragement from from the management tiers, mm -hmm. and we encourage this 
you know, better questions, mm-hmm. um, this this engagement, this empowerment piece, and that that has worked. So it's taken us a while to try and get the delivery model right. Yeah. Um, but you would expect that. I think it's really really different. Um, and, and that tends now to be the model that most organisations use. So if you looked at, at stuff that was done in Luton by Simon, yeah. if you look at stuff that was done in ITV by Ruth, uh, that has been kind of side-in stuff, mm-hmm. high degrees of activity at the bottom, but engagement from the uh, from the board and from the management at the top, giving permission, if you like, mm-hmm. um, that these things can happen. Mm-hmm. and giving permission around the visibility of the outcomes of these sorts of micro-experiments going on. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's great. It's, you know, it's, so, it's so important that people can, 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 can feel that they're part of something that is, that is changing, that is developing, that is, you know, and, and they've all, cause everybody's got a role to play. That's the, that's the thing. And I think, you know, I must admit, I've been guilty of this, you know, of, of, of um, you know, because blame, you know, blame is, is 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 so negative, isn't it? Towards you know, towards any of these programs, and you know, and, and and when when things don't quite work out right, you you know, you you know, we're saying don't blame don't blame the people uh, at, the, at, the, at the at the the problem at the when I say the problem where the incident has happened, where the event has happened, but you can you can fall into the trap though of actually sort of trying to trying to push that blame a bit further up the uh, up the management tree. But in actual fact, you know, blame hasn't got a place. Full stop. Really, <laughs> you know, it, it shouldn't be there. No. And you know, so what were your what are your views on that? Well, I think so. Conklin sums it up in a phrase: "You can blame and punish, or you can learn and yeah. improve. You can't do both." Um, that's not to say that there are occasions where <clears throat> um, it is necessary to deal with people. <laughs> Um, you know, you may have saboteurs, you may have individuals that feel that, you know, the rules do not apply to me. And regardless of, of your efforts, I will always continue to work the way. And you deal with these people, um, but you don't design your systems around them. And I think that's what we've done. So we've designed our systems around these outliers, around these renegades, around these saboteurs. Hence, we have thousands and thousands of rules which are designed to control, constrain, and and limit the degree of freedom the workers have. You know, you deal with these people um, by dealing with them as individuals. You don't design your systems around them. So I think this. So I, I thought sums it up. You can you can learn and improve, or you can blame and punish. And as soon as you choose one of those ways, that's your organisation. I think locked into um, locked into that way of thinking. Um, Todd tells this beautiful story, which is if you ever want to meet your your daughter's second boyfriend, don't criticize her choice. Of the first yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard him say that. Which is kind of cool. And you've got to think about that for a wee while. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so try and understand, try and see the, con- the, the context, um, and you've got a much better. Um, you got a much better outcome as a result. Um, so, I, I, and it's one of the. I think it's one of the um, the areas where we do differ from traditional investigation and traditional safety. Um, I I think that traditionally we have seen behaviour, the behaviour of workers simply as a choice. You know, so you decide to to choose safely or you decide to choose unsafely. And um, it's kind of a, it's it's almost a, a sentence on the morally defective worker. 
bad decision, you know. So morally defective workers choose make bad choices, and 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 other workers make really good choices. We or I see behaviour as a as a function or a symptom of the environment in which it occurs, not a choice. Um, I don't think any electrician, for instance, when given the choice of taking time to lock out and tag out um, or working on a live system, knowing that the potential outcome is a, is a horrible death, would choose to work on a live system where the outcome is a horrible death. If lockout tagout was a was a reasonable alternative, I think you speak to them, you they say, "Well, I always choose lockout tagout," and yet electricians every year, uh, you know, suffer horrible deaths as a result of being electrocuted. So, I don't think it's a choice that made them head down that route. I think there's something else. So, the, the context of of that decision, the pressures that they're under, um, you know, the peer pressure, the the project pressure, the time pressure. All of these things affect that decision. Um, and unless you address the environment that that choice is made in, simply replacing that electrician with a different electrician is not ultimately going to lead to a different outcome. And yet that's what we do. You know, you made a bad choice, we'll sack them. We'll bring someone else in and they'll make better choices because we've told them to make better choices. Unless you fix the environment, and you're never truly going to get to the bottom of events like that. But we, but that, I think that's a big difference is that behavioralists see behavior as a choice. Um, I like to see um, behavior as a symptom of much larger problems in the organization. It's really, it's really interesting. Well, I've got, um, you know, I've got, I've got a client who works as a as a subcontractor in the in the construction industry. Does a lot of work in London, and uh, and they had they had an incident and. And 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 his immediate approach was to 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 get rid of the get rid of the people that were on the site and and, and I had a long chat with him about it. Um, but to, to, to be fair, he was he was almost reacting to the pressure that he was getting from the main contractor, you oh, yeah. know. And that was you know and yeah. that was the you know that you know and it, it was almost you know it was he was he was almost being put into a position where he almost had no choice other than to get rid of the people, you know. Yeah, it's expected. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's your mitigation. You know, I've lost count of the number of times, honestly, where I've picked the phone up and been told of an event um, only to be reassured that it won't happen again because we fired the guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is that all we've done? Yeah, yeah, that's enough. We just fired the guy. And and that was a fairly common occurrence, you know, um, in, in construction. You know, someone hit a service or... You know that was that, that was what you did to them. You 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 huckled them down the road. Yeah. And often organisations have got these two, you know one two or three yeah, strike right. rules. Right. You know, so if you do it three times, then you're out. <laughs> Who in their right mind would ever be caught by a three strike yeah. rule? Yeah. Right? yeah, that's right. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a crazy red cards, green cards, you know, all that all that kind of stuff. It, yeah. Uh, you know, there's 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 much much better ways of working than than trying to put those kind of those kind of things in place. But but you know, I suppose it's it's again. It's the mindset of the people. Is is it's it's it, it's it's something that they can see. It's a it's a tangible um, uh, approach without really thinking about the effect that it's having. And that and that's the that's the thing. It just drives people to silence, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I think it's lazy safety. So I've yeah. called it I've called it lazy safety throughout the years. And I think things like you know zero harm, and that's another debate yeah, altogether. Yeah, yeah. But but I think. 
zero harm strap lines, I think that's lazy mm-hmm. safety. To be honest, I think just trotting out these, you know, we're a zero harm organization and having zero harm as a goal, I think that's yeah. lazy. I think red cards and, and, and yellow cards, I think that's lazy yeah. as well. I, again, I think that's, that's substituting a really difficult question. You know, why did you do that with a really easy one, which is you had a choice, you made a bad choice, you're mm-hmm. out of here. I, I, I really do think it's yeah. lazy. I, I worked with a business a few years ago that had this, you know, we were going back to rules. They had this rule that everybody would wear safety glasses. And I went onto this uh, this um, uh, roadwork site at night. We were laying, uh, laying asphalt at 160 degrees centigrade and it was raining. And there was steam coming off of up off of the uh, off of the mat. Yeah. And the guys couldn't see the way they were going because they were wearing these glasses. So we, we said, take them off. And the, the, out, the, the outroar that was, you know, you can't do that. We said, "Well, we can." And we, you know, we are because it's a, it's the right. It's a it's a, a lazy way of, of managing these these uh, you know one size fits all approach to PPE. It's just it's just really really poor, and it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 again, it spills back to a school of our philosophy that says, as as management. Um, there is one best way of working and we can distill all of this down to 10 or 12 golden rules, 10 or 12 absolutes. Yeah. Um, you know, it comes to binary ways of thinking, cause and effect, Newtonian mm-hmm. thinking. It comes back to all of that. And I think that might have been suitable once upon a time, um, you know, um, when the world was simple. But the world has moved on. You know, we are still using accident investigation techniques that we used when we pulled plowshares at the back of carts. Um, and those sorts of investigation techniques might have been entirely suitable where a wheel fell off a wagon or a plowshare broke. You know, take the thing, take the whole um, incident apart, look at the component parts, fix the component part, put it back all together again, and it will work. It might have worked then, but you try applying that sort of um, theory or approach to two airliners that approached within a hundred feet of another, one another in congested airspace, where air traffic controllers over, are overworked, where pilots speak different languages, where airlines have different rules, where there are different rules in different parts of the world. You try and apply that simplistic view of events to that, and you will fail miserably. The problem is we still yeah. do. John, um, you know, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. You know, I really, I really, really appreciate uh, appreciate your time. How um how can people get hold of you? What um, um well, they can get if you, if if you want anybody to, that is. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I still, I, I, you know, I, I think that one of the um, one of the things that becomes incumbent upon individuals when they start something like this <laughs> yep. is that they continue it. You know, we develop the architecture for the kind of safety differently approach. And look, there's no there is no difference between safety differently, hop, safety to you could you could squeeze a cigarette paper if you're lucky between them all. I mean, there are slight differences, but fundamentally, they're all taking the same approach. And um, and when we started working on this architecture 10 years ago, um, it was all about spreading the word. So I remember Daniel and I doing a roadshow um, in the UK, which was where Simon, um, where Simon first met us. Um, 
and kind of trying to spread the word about this alternative, this different way of thinking, um, this new, this different philosophy around safety. Um, so I think it's incumbent upon um, upon that group of people to continue to try and spread that message and to encourage others to do the same. Um, you know, I'm trying to do something similar with IOSH, where I sit on the board of trustees, because I do think the, the, the profession needs to modernise um, its way of thinking. I'm on LinkedIn, um, and, and folk can connect with me on, on LinkedIn if they're interested. They can see some of the stuff that I've done on the Safety Differently website, safetydifferently.com. Um, and I'm more than happy to talk to people because I do firmly believe, and I'll go back to kind of one of my soapbox moments, I do firmly believe that safety is at a crossroads and probably has been for a period of time. Um, but that crossroads now, the, the, the focus has been really shone on it by what's happening in COVID. Um, we're at a crossroads where we can either continue down the route that we've been on exclusively for the past 30 years of command and control, of telling people there is one way of working, of seeing people as the problem in an organization, of seeing safety as the absence of something, and as a, as a result generating this enormous bureaucratic beast that sets over organizations. We can continue down that road, or we can decide that using and building on the past that actually people who work in organizations have the solution to many of the problems that we face that safety is the capacity of the organization to get things right not the absence of things going wrong and that safety is actually about an ethical responsibility to the workforce Every, all our efforts should be about making work safer you know, much of our daily activity can we actually say does that um, so I think we're at this crossroads. We can either decide to continue on where we've always gone or take this deviation, taking some of the stuff from the past with us. Because if we don't, um, and I've been in this for 40 years, so I feel entitled to say this, because if we don't, I think we run the risk of becoming utterly irrelevant in the modern world of work. And we'll simply be ignored because we have no longer have anything of any value to contribute to the organization as it moves forward. That's the choice that we, it's a start choice, but I think that's the choice that faces us at the moment. And so I would encourage anyone who wants to get in touch with me to get in touch with me. And we can share some of the stuff we're doing in organizations across the world. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, mate. It's been a pleasure. So what do you think about that? Uh, John, first of all, thank you ever so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, it has been really great to, to chat with you. I just found it very interesting, you know, listening, you know, about just talking about, you know, what success really looks like and how we measure success. And I know there's loads and loads of debate out there about, um, you know, about the, the pros and the cons of, uh, of, of accident statistics and measuring numbers and, you know, and the drive to zero and, you know, whether we should or we shouldn't. And I think, you know, hopefully what we've done today is just is just explore that a little bit, give a little bit of context, uh, um, you know, to the uh, to the discussion. And I think what was really, you know, nice to hear John saying was, you know, that there is, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff that's been done in the past, but but really we need to be looking forward and and how we move forward as a um 
you know, as a as a as a, as a group, as a you know, as a, um, as a as a department within a within a business, you know, so that we don't become irrelevant, and we've got to stay relevant, and we've got to be seen to offer value to the businesses that we serve and that we work with, and uh, you know, and whilst we can uh, you know be seen to be offering value, then we have got a fantastic opportunity to to be part of something absolutely amazing. You know, helping your business, helping your, your colleagues be successful from a health and safety perspective has, has got to be one of the, the greatest things that you can that you can do as an individual. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's a journey. It's a journey that we're on and a journey that we move down. So, so thank you very much. Thanks for your discussions about, uh, about critical risk controls. Uh, I thought that was uh, really interesting to hear about that. And um, it be great to get you back on again, John, when you've uh, you've managed to get your feet under the table, um, and uh, you know, see how you're influencing the way that a business um, like SNC Lavalin are actually moving forward. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, you know, please comment, please share, um, and uh, it'll be great to uh, to hear um, you know what your what your key takeaways were from this uh, from this episode. Thanks a lot. Now, bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. You can follow and engage on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching the Interesting Health and Safety Community or go to www.influentialmg.com. And remember, let's make health and safety as important as everything else we do in business.